0: Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible no limit hold'em hand. 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like Ace King are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're gonna have some
1: fun.
0: Hello, everyone and welcome back to the grid today i am here with poker host writer life coach and the founder of 1000 days sober experience it is lee davey he's also the host of i am high stakes poker and a hero's journey i was on the ladder show so i'm very excited to flip the table and interview lee and today he brings us 10 suited from his days trying to become a poker pro, a goal that dovetailed with his plans to carve out space to create 1,000 Days Sober. Lee, hello, welcome to the show.
1: Good to be on it, Jennifer. It's been a long time, but I'm really, really grateful to be here.
0: Yeah, yeah, so you told me that you have a hand in particular that you want to show us, but also you had a very general approach to this hand that differed from others.
1: The main thing that I wanted to uh, share, I guess, is you know, the, the, sometimes the poker industry, especially if you just are in the in the, the community and you just you're surrounded by Twitter and social media and that kind of thing. It's skewed towards like success It's skewed towards like everybody making money or giving off the impression that they're making money. And um, it wasn't really like that for me when I first came into poker. Um, so I just wanted to share the journey of like the person trying to be a pro. And and what was going through my mind back then, and it segues nicely into some of the conversations I've been having behind the scenes in the poker community in terms of, you know, addiction and that kind of things. I tried to become a poker pro around 2009, 2008, 2009. At that time, I'd been working on the railway for 20 years, straight out of school, 16 years of age. And then I stopped drinking alcohol. And I um, I enrolled in Jack Canfield's Success Principles training course. And I had this coach. And she was asking me how I felt about working on the railway. And at the time, I hated it. We was in the recession of the economic crisis. And uh, I was getting, um, I had to save a lot of money. I had to lay a lot of people off. I was receiving death threats. I had to get into work through picket lines. It was a right old nightmare. And um, there were times when I was crying myself to sleep. I just didn't want to go into work. And this life coach is like, well, what are we doing it for? And it was all about money. And she said to me, what do you really want to do? And it took me a long time to figure it out. It was a very difficult, challenging, arduous question. What is your meaning and purpose? Especially because at 35, I felt being faced with that question and not knowing the answer, like I'd done something terribly wrong in the previous 35 years of my life. And I was really... Bashing myself up as a result of that, but she really helped me out, you know. And I and I realized that I really wanted to help people quit alcohol, like really wanted to help in in a big way. I wanted to create this this company, but I didn't know how to go from working on the railway to creating this company and supporting my family. And she she asked me, "Well, what is it you love right now?" And I love poker, like I love poker more than anything back then. Like I could play every day like nonstop, like we would uh, play this game on a Tuesday night in the local pub and we would all wake, you know, we would just play through and go to work the next day, you know? And we all said, wouldn't it be great if we could be a poker pro? So I was like, okay, I'm going to take early retirement from the railway and I'm going to give myself one year. And I always remember my goal. It was only to make $45,000 through poker in a year. That was my goal. Not a million, not 10 million like True Tell. It was like 45,000. Just so I could prove to my wife that I could pay the bills. And I felt that poker would give me the freedom and the money to be able to set up this this business. So we got into it. And then what, like 10 years later, I'm still in the poker industry, but that's not going to last too much longer. So the hand that I wanted to share with you was 10-8 suited. It was in the uh, Grosvenor United Kingdom Poker Tour in Blackpool in 2010. And I want to preface it by saying it was a 1K main event. And I was a gambling addict at the time. and I had 30,000 pounds worth of gambling debt and I was winning and losing playing poker. It wasn't very secure. wasn't, uh, wasn't winning enough to pay the bills.
0: When you say gambling debt was it, what kind of, uh, gambling was it?
1: It was, uh, largely uh sports betting, and horse racing. Mm-hmm. I, I got into this ridiculous situation when I was working on the railway, where I bought myself a bot and, uh, I would set it up before I went to work in the morning to lay horse racing bets around a certain number of parameters. And then I would go to work and then I would come home and I was winning or losing more in a day than I was earning in a month. And that very quickly escalated to uncontrollable credit card debt, it was around £30,000, like I said. And then when I went into PT Blackpool, I put another £1,000 on the credit card. So now you're up to 31000 I just remember being in this tournament. I mean, I felt confident, but I look back now, I had no clue how to play poker. Do you know, when you talk to poker players, Jennifer, you'll know straight away just by the way they're talking about the game, whether they understand it or not. Like, I just didn't, I didn't even understand really what was going on. I obviously had some raw talent, but I really didn't know what I was, what I was doing. So I was winning in my local game because everybody else was much weaker than me and i was doing really well in like in online tournaments but i think i was just kind of getting lucky you know at this point in time so i entered this tournament with 1k on my credit card and it's a big one it's like 67000 up top something like that and 108 suited <laughs> I think I think it was James Altucher I heard on your show say that there was just a hand that he always plays no matter what just to spice up his game. Yes. right.
0: It was 8-5 offsuit so definitely less sensible than 10-8 suited as a three betting randomizing hand but hey <laughs> that's okay. But he had a, a really funny story around it and he was mostly playing limit yeah. um, but in this case of course it was a no limit hold'em tournament.
1: Mine was 10-8. It wasn't necessarily 10-8 suited as well. It was like any hand, like I would play 10-8 off or 10-8 suited. But in this in this instance, it was 10-8 suited. And I I think that was part of the gamble in me, Jennifer. Like I, I just wanted, I always wanted to play. I was very loose, aggressive and, you know, giving myself a hand that I'm just going to play this hand no matter what the circumstances are, I'm going to play this hand. It's like a rule I had. And we were down to, I think it was the last three tables in this tournament. And I had a friend of mine called Gary Ackerman, who was also in the tournament. Now, Gary, there was like 10 of us who had gone to Blackpool, made a big trip of it for the week. You know, and we're talking like major poker. So we would like get up in the morning, play poker in the pool, on the pool table in this crappy little BNB we were in. And then we would go to the casino and then we would demand a table so all of us friends could play around and play cash. So we went all the way to Blackpool, which is like five hours away, just to play together, Right. We didn't, we didn't want other people on the table that we could win money off them. Of. It was just like our boys weekend away, you know? And we always had a, a really good time there. We All of us did really, really well in the tournament. And Gary Ackerman, he was the one guy, he wasn't a pro, but he played more than a pro. He'd retired and he was the one who could just flick in a 1K and it didn't really matter to him while everyone else was kind of struggling. He comes to sit next to me. I'm in a small blind. He's in a big blind. Three tables left. We're very chatty. We obviously don't want to like, in each other's way because we both want to get to the final table. I don't remember stack sizes, but I remember the most important thing going on at this time was really believing that this was my opportunity to get out of debt. My only goal to get out of 30Ks worth of debt, and bear in mind, I didn't even tell my wife, the only goal was to retire on the railway at 55 and then kind of like get my pension. That was the only goal until all of a sudden I find poker and it's like, oh, maybe I can repay my debt this way. I want to draw attention to that because like I'm in the game for all the wrong reasons. I'm making decisions for all the wrong reasons, right? It's coming from a pace of scarcity, terror. There were times in in the tournament where I just wasn't making the right moves because I wanted to remain in the tournament because I wanted to win the money. Whereas now when I'm like talking to high stakes poker players and interviewing them, they're taking the risk because, you know, that money up top is so much more important to them, you know, mathematically wise, you know? So this guy sits next to me, he's like, a "Really good friend." And I open a small bike with 108 suited, uh, he free bet, and I call. I don't remember the stack sizes, um, but I know that we weren't deep. And the flop comes, Ace eight, eight. I got uh, trips, and I can't remember exactly how the money went in, but I remember that I went all in and he had to call, and he looked at me, and I thought the guy was going to cry. He's got Aces. And he thinks he's got me, well, he has got me crushed, right? And he looks at me and he he, he actually told me afterwards that he nearly folded because he knew how much his tournament meant to me to pay off my debt.
0: Yeah, but folding would be like cheating, right?
1: Completely. Like this is what he told me afterwards, right? I don't think he ever would because of this prestige and where we were and all that. But that's what he said to me, right? That's how it felt for him. He was like, he was devastated. And he turned over his hand and I was devastated and my heart was racing. And I just, because I really thought that I had him. And I wasn't thinking like he was. I was like, well, happy to knock him out of the tournament, you know, even though he was my mate. And then I hit an eight on the turn, give me quads. Wow. I said to him, he said, Look, I'm really sorry. It took ages for him to like turn his hand over. And I'm like, like Don't worry, Gary. Like, if I'm going to give anyone my chips, I- I'd rather give them to you, you know, best of luck. And I stood up. I thought it was over. And then I eight came.
0: What about the ace on the river?
1: <laughs> uh, no, we didn't get the ace on <laughs> the river. I didn't eliminate him, but he got he got crushed and he was out after that. And then I'm, I've got a lot of chips. My thought process at the time was, wow, I want to make the final table. And again, it was just all for the wrong reasons. Like I was very ego-driven, very fixed mindset, very external validation is important to me. And I just wanted to be on that final table now. Now, now all of a sudden, the, th- the 30 grand, the, the 67 grand, like gone by the way, so I just want to be the center of attention. And I ended up, getting knocked out in 13th place with a bad beat. It wasn't 10-8 suited. But the thing that I'll always remember about it was all the way up until that point, Jennifer, and you would have experienced this far more times than me in in these type of tournaments, which, you know, for me was a big deal. I was a major cast member in that tournament. It was like, it was a, a movie. And I was one of the cast with like two tables left. And, my friends kept coming over to ask me how I was doing. And I'm like, you know, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm having banter with everybody. It's like Lee Davy is a part of this. And then I get knocked out and nobody gives a shit. Like <laughs> I'm looking around, I'm, I'm really slow to pick up my headphones. Like I'm devastated. I'm, I'm shaking everybody's hands. And of course it's shaking my hands, but nobody cares that you're out. And it was like, I just I remember walking over to the cash game area where all my friends were playing. I think I, I earned like 2700 or something. And I was just devastated. And even my friends were like, how did it go? And I was like, oh, I got knocked out in 13th. And they were like, oh, okay. And they just got back to the their cash game. Where for me, it was like my whole world had ended, but nobody was aware that my world had ended. Like nobody could feel, I wanted everybody to feel my pain. And I took out the 27 thousand sat down cash game and dusted it all off and the whole thing was like a a complete waste of time. But yeah, I I just wanted to mention that hand because I was in a real mess at that point. The poker and the gambling addiction didn't really kind of it wasn't affected by it. So you're never going to see me flick in like 10K in a in a tournament. But I definitely had a problem with cash games, you know, where I could set myself stop loss limits and then I would just go over them all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't just me, like in this local home game that we had called the Ogmore Poker Tour, I eventually turned it into a serial and actually wrote about it in Bluff Magazine. It was one of my very early parts of writing. Like Gary Eckerman, who I talk about in this thing, he was called The Sleeper. And when we would go around the Grosvenor Casinos, people would know the people who I was, because I was writing about them and this magazine was free in the Grosvenor Casinos. It was really interesting, but we were all really desperate. I remember once being in a pub and um, it, it kicked us out like four o'clock in the morning. And then just being in this house that hadn't been built yet. And the only thing we had was cement bags. So we was playing heads up. I mean, this guy called Terry, the run Welsh. She was like the local weed seller in, in Ogmore Vale at the time. And I was on one cement bag. He was on another cement bag. And we had the other cement bag where we would just we would just play. And yeah, it was just a desperation. It was just underneath the the veneer of what we see in the poker community, it was just all these people who didn't have the money to play were playing. And a lot of them didn't know why they were playing, what they were doing. It was just um, a very, very strange time. And then I, I realized then that uh, this was just going out of control. I confessed to my wife that I had this addiction. And then I, I just accidentally got into poker and writing about this tour that I was playing in. And then I thought, hang on, this this income is more consistent than poker playing. And my dream of uh, being a poker pro just went up in dust.
0: And now you play for fun, no doubt.
1: I haven't played poker for years, like two years. When I go away on tours, so like I was in the EPT Barcelona and I played in a meter event and come second, uh, I'll do that. But other than that, I, I don't play because now since coming clean and overcoming my gambling addiction and overcoming my alcohol addiction and sugar and everything else that i changed in my life, I had to have a really close look at my values hierarchy and how I spent my time is really important. And what I could never come to terms with trying to be a poker pro was all the time wasted, just sat down playing poker. Like they, they, the highs for me never really compensated for hours and hours and hours of nothingness of just, just folding, folding, folding the banter and the chat was okay, but I just didn't feel like I was growing. Yeah. Nowadays, like the choice of like jumping online on a Sunday and playing poker tournament for 12 hours or committing that 12 hours to help people overcome an addiction. Like I just don't play.
0: Yeah. And you also have a son, right?
1: Yeah. I have a 19 year old son who interestingly, two days ago went to the casino for the first time so he said he wasn't going to spend a lot of money. He's a lot more sensible than me when it comes to money. I mean, a lot of it is to do with you know money mindset when you're growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, I had I had nothing growing up. My parents had a really bad attitude around money and money management. So I was putting my dinner money into slot machines on the way to school in my teen years, just trying to multiply it and uh, trying to just. Money and status and recognition, it was a really important thing to me as a child. Poker just fell into that perfectly.
0: That is why it's so dangerous to teach young people poker, because everybody's money situation and mindset is so different, right? That you are not really just teaching them poker. You have to kind of know what you're coming into. So I have so many questions about what just happened at that tournament where you busted your friend with 10-8 suited against aces. First of all, like, I mean, how can this happen blind versus blind?
1: Mate versus mate.
0: It's amazing. Also, why 10-8? Why 10-8 suited and 10-8 off? Like, why did you pick this as your randomizer to do something crazy with. Although in this particular hand you didn't do anything crazy, right? You just called a you mm. just called a three bet, right? But it's blind versus blind and you have a good suited card. So that's not that surprising. But in general you often got out of line with this
1: hand. Like why? I, I first found poker in, in Las Vegas. We we went on a stag weekend in Las Vegas and just started playing and that was the start of my demise because I came back with more money than I went out with and thought that I could be a, a gambling pro, you know? And I think when I started playing online poker for fun, I started playing on party poker. And I, re- I remember I tell this story where I would open from under the gun and most people were folding. So I thought that was a good thing. Like I would just keep opening from under. This is before I read any poker books or I knew anything about poker. And I think what happened around that time was I would win with certain hands and I would get superstitious over them. And I think 10-8 was one of those where I just played it a few times, kept winning with it. And I was like, oh, wow, I keep winning with his hand, you know? So I think my my mindset in the early doors before I got a coach uh, was very much around superstition and just going with what was happening without really understanding why it was happening. So not understanding variance, not understanding the fundamentals of poker, just literally, whoa, I just won so much money with 10-8 suited yesterday. And almost like, you know, when you you have... You have two types of memory. You have the memory that when you go to the ATM machine, your body just knows what your number is without you even thinking about it, right? Or you know how to tr- drive a car. But then there's those memories that you remember when you get married or you have sex for the first time or you win with 10-8 suited in a poker game for like more money than you've ever won before. That like just get etched in because that now you're talking about emotion. You know, emotion is like with the thought. So like those emotionally charged moments for me, I guess I can't remember it, so. But I, I think that's where it comes from, Jen. For sure, it's like just spewing around with it and it working.
0: One memory I had was um, one of your guests on I Am High Stakes Poker, Dan Devoris. He was either talking about a hand, or I asked him about a hand, and the flop must have been six, seven, nine, something that really hit ten, eight suited. And he was like, "Well, yeah, but I would never have ten, eight suited here because I that's always in my three bet range." I was like, "Oh, wow." I'm sure divorce was like a, among the, the first to um, properly mix ranges in pre But I think this was at a time where maybe people were doing a little bit less mixing or maybe it was just a spot where you didn't really need to mix as much because it was like narrow ranges. In any case, I, I was like, wow, okay. Like always that hand. And like that's something I really need to like kind of think about more because I wouldn't think that I would always do that there. But maybe that means I'm not three betting enough. So that 10-8 suited kind of stuck in my mind because th- that one and like 9-7 suited, they always kind of show up in those ranges as frequent three bets because they're not as good as their more connected pa- counterparts, right? 10-9 nine suited, 9-8 nine, suited. Mm. So um, when you told me you were going to take this hand, that kind of memory just like popped into my head right away.
1: I definitely wasn't thinking like that when I was younger. It wasn't till like. I had a few coaches, but I had one coach in particular. His name was Alan Jackson, and he used to be the coach for Blue Fire Poker. And back then, Jennifer, because I didn't have any money and I was just starting out as a writer, what I would do is reach out to people like Jared Tendler, reach out to um, Martin, uh, Dr. Jiggy. Uh, used to win on Full Tilt a lot, and he was a coach at Blue Fire. Jason Sentai, who's now like the CEO of Run It Once, and um, yeah, Alan Jackson. And I would reach out to them and say, come and be my coach, you know? And they would tell me the rates and I'd be like, I can't pay that, but, but I can promote you because I can write about you. So me and Jared Tendler did a series in one of the magazines called the mental game of poker, where he was like, basically I would go play poker and we would do sessions and we would write about it and share it in this serial, you know? And similarly with Alan Jackson, but Alan was different because he busted out like holder manager. And was like we were really scrutinizing every single hand from every single position. He got me off um, full tilt and onto PKR when I was playing cash games, and I started to to you know it started to go really well. Started to win a bit of money on there, um, but there, that was the first time. I, I think he's that series that me and Alan Jackson did on Blue Fire and Poker is still on there. I think it was called like from amateur to pro or something. He was basically trying to turn me into a pro. And show people at the same time like how to do it and I was mixing in life lessons like oh today I just had like a massive fight with my wife over money to do with poker so we were kind of mixing it matching it someone recently just reached out to me to ask me to help him quit alcohol he was watching that show now like 10 years later it's incredible.
0: You know, bringing us to alcohol and your ability to overcome your addiction, for people who don't have an alcohol addiction, what do you think they most should understand about the addiction and ex or current addicts that they might not know?
1: You know, I recently did a podcast uh, episode with Runchucks, Poker, I don't know if you ever listened to it. And before I did the podcast episode, Runchucks was saying to me, I ain't got no problem with alcohol. Right. Like, I hardly ever drink it. I ain't got a problem with it, but I'm really interested in what you've got to say. So I go on his podcast and we talk about this for two hours. And at the end of it, he's like, okay, I want to hear more. And what it was that, that I think touched Runchucks was that when you're playing poker, and we've just heard me talk about my very amateurish hand whilst I'm trying to become professional, clueless, and talking about it in a very amateurish way. Right. But when you become, a professional, or when you really dedicate your life to kind of like making this work, but doing it in a, in a really constructive way, how you think about the game is super important. And asking the right questions is really, really important. Remember the first coach I ever had, he used to ask me all the time, why? Why? So I'd say, he'd say what You say, what'd you do in this hand? Oh, I opened 4X on the button. Why? And i get really irritated with him. I'd be, what do you mean? Why? I just did it. There is no reason. And he would would slam me for not knowing the why. So when it comes to alcohol addiction, the way that I really help people overcome it is to get them to ask the why. Why, 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 why are you doing this? I'll give you an example. Good friend of mine at the moment is struggling. She is what we'll call sober curious. And she's on the phone and she's saying to me, Lee, I know that this is not right for me. So my gut and everything, I'm getting into trouble. I know it's not right for me. Here's the thing though. I can't stop drinking because I'm it's, it's embedded in my social structure in London. There is a movement, and I love that movement. We go dancing, we go socializing, and it all revolves around alcohol. If I don't go out, I will lose all my friends. So me and this friend of mine, we share uh, two beautiful friends together. And I, and I said to her, when you're with Frank and Alex, I'll say, right. when you're with Frank and Alex, what percentage of time do you drink alcohol? She said, I would say 60, 60, 65% of the time we drink alcohol. I say, okay, do you have a good time with them? Yeah. Okay. I said, how much percentage do you think I drink alcohol with them or they drink alcohol with me when I get together with them? She said, uh, I I don't know, like 50%, 60%. I said, 0%. So when I'm with them, they don't drink alcohol. When you're with them, you drink alcohol 60% of the time. She's like, yeah. Okay. Out of 10 How do you, I know this is very subjective, I said to her, but out of 10, how do you feel your experiences rate? She said, well, normally when I go around there, we're having 10 out of 10 time, right? I say, okay, well, you know, you've seen me around and we've been together as a group. What do you think my rating is out of 10? She said, well, you're a 10. Like you always got them laughing. They're always crying their eyes out laughing. You're always having a good time. They're they're two people that you can just talk about anything deep, meaningful. Uh, They don't judge you. When you talk about things that are going on, they're very vulnerable. It's the ideal friends. So you think you need to drink alcohol in that moment with those people, but I don't drink alcohol with them and we both have a great time, but you think that it improves your social experience. Then she says, oh, wow, I never thought about it like that before, but she can't continue thinking about it and going deeper because the addiction or what I call resistance won't allow her to because it interjects and it creates justifications and it creates denial. It silences the cognitive dissonance. So in other words, what will happen is my friend will go, or her resistance will say, don't speak to Lee again about this, because Lee's got something here and we don't want to listen to him because we want to keep on drinking. Because one thing she is right about, Jen, her friendships will change. What will happen is she will realize that the people she's knocking around with are not the people she wants to knock around with. They'll run, they'll disappear. Like I said to her, why are you so worried about telling your friends that you're curious about not drinking if they're your friends? The people who turn around and say, what? You got a problem with alcohol? Well, I ain't changing my life for you. Now you've got to step up and say to yourself, what do we want out of life? And I don't think enough people spend the time to think to themselves, what, what do I want my friendships to look like? What happens is they just find friends. And I see this a lot in the poker industry where people say to me, man, I'm fed up of getting screwed over. I'm getting screwed over and screwed over and screwed over all the time. Who buy My friends. I hear that so many times. My friends are screwing me over. How on earth did you get friends to screw you over? So we need to start to think about life in a poker way and say to ourselves, okay, so I want friends, what do they look like? What values do I want them to have? So for me, I don't want friends who drink alcohol, not, not to a degree where it's gonna affect me and bother me. It's just something I don't want.
0: Not to a degree in which they won't be able to respect that they shouldn't drink alcohol around you or just depends on the situation.
1: There are some people, like uh, if we take Gary Ackerman, the guy who I knocked out to this tournament, for example, Gary likes to drink, but Gary's one of those that drinks, but you don't really see a difference in in Gary. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't change. Gary's Gary. It just doesn't change. But then in that same game that I was playing in, I would also have friends who would drink and they would get angry and they would get aggressive and they would be berating people at the table and they would be berating the dealers. They're the people I don't want to be around. The dilemma with poker is when you sit at a table next to a drunk, there's part of you that's like, oh, this is fantastic. This guy is smashed. I'm going to take all his money, right? And then there's another part of you that's going, this guy is smashed. He's really going to spoil my enjoyment. And that, to me, was a bit of a mind fuck because then I'm like, what am I here for? Am I here just to take this guy's money or I'm here to enjoy myself? And every time I personally thought about poker, it was always about the money. And even now, when I work with people on a one-on-one uh, situation that help them quit smoking help them quit drinking i i work with people who you know play very high stakes and they don't need they don't need the money they don't need it yet it's creating all this stress and angst in other areas of their life and it just becomes part of what we do like breathing air i play poker why do you play poker for it's just my life like it's my life it's my social structure and it's very similar to what do you drink alcohol for when you go out just what we do why do you open forex from the button. Uh, It's just what we do. If you look at that through a long-term lens, very often you'll find that, holy shit, holy shit, this does nothing for me whatsoever, but I've created this story. No, I haven't created it. The world's created and supports this story. It provides us with intense value. That is a massive problem if you have a propensity towards addiction.
0: Absolutely. And As somebody who is not, um, has problems with various addictions, but never with alcohol, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, you know, if I have a friend who's trying to quit alcohol, you know, when they tell me that I'm very supportive and like definitely for like the first, you know, first few times I see them, first few months, I wouldn't drink in front of them. I'd just abstain. But then like if they've been kind of clean for like a long time, say a thousand days, at some point you start drinking again because you kind of assume that unless they tell you otherwise, it's cool. What's your take on that? Like what should friends do in that situation to be supportive? Should they just ask or does that kind of like scratch an itch? I mean, not scratch an itch, um, you know, just kind of like open a wound. I meant the opposite of scratch an itch, open a wound.
1: It's a really important question because how many times, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a story and, and, it, and it will probably probably sing to you. You'll probably go, like, yeah, I get that completely. Let's say your friend stops drinking mm-hmm. and they go to their friend and they're like, I stopped drinking. Now, your first impulse for a lot of people is you want to provide support for them immediately. So immediately your friend has come to you and they've said to you, I want to stop drinking alcohol. And society, I believe there is a... An invisible, violent, and dominant belief system that encourages to drink alcohol, but it hasn't got a name. So I call it alcoholism. And it's violent because we have 3.3 million deaths a year of alcohol. And if you go down to your city center, no matter where you live in the world, there will be very big guys on the doors of every place that sells this stuff. And we're supposed to be having fun. So what are they there for? Alcohol is very violent. It's dominant because more people in the world, according to the World Health Organization, have drank than have not drank. And it's invisible, this belief system, because despite the carnage that it causes, it is the only drug in the world where we're actively encouraged to take it. And we're ostracized, ridiculed, and shamed when we don't. So just kind of bear that in mind, right? So because that belief system exists, and we don't know it exists because it's invisible and we're not party to it. When someone comes to you and says, I've stopped drinking alcohol, or, or you go to a bar and you say, do you want to drink? They say, no. Why? I, just, I don't want to drink. Your brain automatically goes, oh, this person's got a problem. And this is part of the reason why people don't want to open up and say they don't want to drink. Because they know, they feel that judgment straight away. And the person judging them doesn't even know they're judging them. But it's part of the belief system. If you don't want to drink, then there's something wrong with you. And what do we think when somebody doesn't want to drink? Where does it go? How do we bracket it? So we created the caricature of the alcoholic. So if you don't want to drink, you are an alcoholic. You have an alcohol problem. Uh, No, I don't want to drink it. You've got the problem because you want to drink it. So when we're thinking this, oh, oh my God, my friend has a problem. They must have an alcohol problem. They must be an alcoholic. The first thing you want to do is put them at ease. So one of the first things you might do is say, you don't have a problem. I drink more than you. Or they might say, just have one. You can moderate. Why don't you just have one now? Or you've had a really hard weekend. So they're trying to put their friend at ease. But think about it from the mind of the addict. The last thing they want is somebody to say to them, you haven't got a problem, just have one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because the addict, the resistance in the mind is crying out for them to drink because they believe it holds incredible value to them. So to answer your question, the responsibility must lie with a person who starts drinking alcohol. They must go to their friend circle and say, and this is what we work at at 1,000 Days Sober, they have to learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. They have to fight the shame by being vulnerable, and they have to say, folks, I've got a real problem with alcohol. I've got a massive problem with it. Um, I woke up the other night in bed with a guy. I have no idea who he is. And I have an idea what we did. And I don't want to be in that situation anymore because I've been in there too many times. And I need your help and support. And this is what it looks like. I need time outside of alcohol. I need you to never ask me to drink it and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? But as people listening to this, not everybody will be confident enough to say that. So if you have a friend who doesn't drink alcohol, you need to ask them, what does support look like to you? So you know how to show up to your friend. But one of the worst things you can do, and this is a defense mechanism is ridicule them and and break into what we call absurdity. I got a 20 odd stitches here, but I got stabbed when I was 18. I got really drunk in Cyprus and got attacked. Who'd you
0: get attacked by?
1: I don't know. Cause I was like blind drunk. I just woke up in hospital oh. getting stitched up. But what did I do as a result of that? You would think normally that somebody would quit alcohol, right? Like you would be like, oh, I'm never doing that again. I turned it into a massive joke. So every time like someone like, oh yeah, yeah. Do you remember that time that Lee got smashed in Cyprus and got stabbed? Wasn't that really funny? It was only on his first night. This is absurdity. It's part of the belief system. It's the way that we allow ourselves to do the most ridiculous, stupid things and almost celebrate them. I slept with so-and-so last night. I can't believe it. He slept with uh, so-and-so. You know, it's like I smashed my face. It's particularly with the men and in, in more recent times, I've noticed this almost like women trying to be like men. Like, I can do what you can do. So if you can drink 10 pints, particularly in the, in the Welsh Valleys, if you can drink 10 pints, I'm going to match you 10 pints. Because I can do what men can do. You know, the word in the Welsh Valleys is geezer bird. Oh, look at this geezer bird. She could do, she's fucking mental. She is, she's, she's like a man. She could do all these crazy things that we're doing. So there's sense of pride and nobility. So I have this thing we call the five ends of justification that we use to allow ourselves to keep drinking. And one of them is nobility. I cannot stop drinking because my friends will think there's something wrong with me. My, my male friends will think that I am weak, you know? So it's it's usually hugely complicated. And what I do is I, I help people very slowly, very deliberately over 2.7 years, which is 1,000 days, to help them understand what is going on. And then once you see it, and once you see the truth, what happens is quite beautiful. Jennifer is alcohol is it's almost like it's almost like a powerarchy, which is a word that Melanie Joy created. And Melanie Joy is a, a vegan advocate. She wrote uh, she's wrote a, a load of great books on relationships. And um, a powerarchy is is an oppressive system. And I find alcoholism to be an oppressive system because if you don't drink, you are oppressed. And once you see that, and you break free of that. You see oppressive systems everywhere. So for me, for example, I realized when I stopped drinking that I was enmeshed in a patriarchal system. I was the guy who shouted at my wife. I was the guy who thought that I was the boss, that she was inferior to me, that that I was the one who made the rules, that I made the money, she looked after the kids. All that kind of nonsense that I got from my upbringing. And I didn't notice it until I stopped drinking. And then I noticed it. And then like today all my work is around helping women who are stuck in those relationships with those men who have no clue what they're doing. They just think they're doing the right thing because they're, you know, they're quote unquote stuck in the matrix, right? So it's almost like 1,000 days sober, we're we're choosing people when it's right to pluck them out of the matrix.
0: Really interesting. And what do you find different about the um, potential gambling addiction? Because I guess some people who have alcohol addictions have gambling addictions, but sometimes not at all. They're very
1: distinct, right? There's uh, an exercise we do in the 1,000 Day Sober program um, called Why We're All Addicts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and w- w- we put it in there so people can learn uh, compassion, develop compassion with themselves. Because one of the things you'll hear a lot is, um, why is it that Jennifer can drink moderately and I can't? So, so they'll they'll perpetuate the myth that they're not good enough. So we try to explain that everybody has an addiction. You just you just don't know what it is. Some people won't get off their phones when they're with their kids, which to me is like really unhealthy, but to them it's just normal. Some people just play poker like 15, 16, 20 hours a day, nonstop. You might be eating too much. I recently realized I had a workah- workaholic issue. I was working all the time to stay away from my family because it was difficult and challenging for me to be with my family. So everybody has an addiction. What I found in the, in the poker community, as I've been talking to people, because what I want to do now is really kind of get back into the poker community and say, hey, you know, I know the poker world. I know poker people. I know addiction. Come and work with me. The main issues at the, at the moment that I'm finding is uh, it's not actually alcohol. It's uh, pornography. It's um, gambling. Um, smoking, believe it or not, and 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 when I think about poker, I think about online poker, I think about live poker, and I am high stakes poker, like when I'm on the Triton tour. So many poker players, like really high stakes poker players, smoking, smoking vapes or smoking cigarettes. It's an eye opener for me, and I think I think the porn as well might be poker itself can be a very lonely game. It's something that is not talked about enough in the poker community, the loneliness and disconnection, because. We shouldn't fool ourselves, Jennifer, that just because we're surrounded by people, let's say we go to EPT San Marino, and at the break, everybody says, Yeah, let's go for a nice, flashy dinner, which happens at every stop, no matter what tour you're on. There's 20 of you barge into this restaurant. A lot of the times, those 20 people are not connected at all. Like they're just connected by poker, but they're not really connected, not really sitting down and sharing like heart bleeding moments and trading melancholy. They're just, they're talking about poker hands and and it doesn't get any kind of deeper than that. That can be lonely, but you don't recognize it because you're in this community, you're in this circus where you're traveling around everywhere and everyone's coming to you. Hey, hey, Lee, hey, Lee, how's it going? Lee, how's it going? What I love about interviewing people is you do get that connection. You're like, wow, so many people I interview, I, I'm like, I want to be this person's friend for life
0: absolutely it's like that kind of transference effect of uh encountered transference effect of like psychology can also definitely happen in interviewing as well somebody who dealt with that really well was um susan orlean in the orchid thief so i recommend you check that out it was it was about just the the uh, experience of working with this guy who was obsessed with orchids and in the book she talks about that like falling in love with the subject or the subject falling in love with her and i think she, but not in like a sexual way, more just like in a, yeah, yeah. an intimate way because you know so much about someone if you write an entire book about them or do a really in-depth interview on them. And I did want to ask you, since so many people are getting into content streams now, whether it's podcasts or very frequently Twitch and YouTube streams, and they often have special guests on, um, what advice do you have um, for, for basic interview techniques?
1: I mean, the first thing I want to say is interviewing and interviewing styles is like very subjective. Right now, at the moment, as I'm contacting people and asking them, do they need help with addiction? Or how did you, why are you following me? Or why did you come into my orbit? A lot of them are saying, we love the I am high stakes poker interviews. That's the thing that comes out the most. But if you read those YouTube comments, (laughs) not, not everybody loves those I am high stakes poker interviews. I think you need to, first of all, develop some thick skin. You, you need to understand and accept that in our industry, and it's pretty much like this in other industries, but slightly, slight nuance. When I do an interview in the sobriety industry, I ain't getting a quote, calling me a dick. It's just 100% extreme love, respect. And even the criticism you get is constructive and you can get something out of it. I tried looking at at comments on YouTube, and I'm high six, popular, to get some constructive criticism. And I gave up because there's nothing constructive. It's just, I don't like this. and I'm going to tell this guy I don't like him and I don't like this. Right. So, you need to develop a fixed skin. I think the other thing is you need your stick. You've got the grid. Uh, the reason the grid is an award winning podcast is it's different. You thought about it and you did something different. For me, my stick was I believe that happiness and connection comes through melancholy and sadness i don't believe it comes through joy and happiness i believe if you walk into a room at a party and it's all kicking off and everyone's dancing and drinking and having a good time and you really you really kind of panicking and you're worrying the way to connect is not to drink and party and all that the way to connect is to sit down and when someone says to you how are you doing you say actually i'm feeling really really nervous right now i don't like to be here i don't like big crowds i feel really uncomfortable feel like a wallflower, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other person is like, whoa, I feel the same way, or at least they feel like the portcullis is up so they can like they can be a little bit loose and free, right? So for me, whenever I get into those conversations, like conversations I had with you in the hero's journey, for example, and here today, although I've done like most of the talking, but in hero's journey, when you were like sharing, sharing your life, that to me is connection. Like we connected in that moment. So my stick is, Okay, if that is connection and and, and I feel that and I know the other person does, wouldn't somebody watching it feel that too? So I always wanted to bring the deep, meaningful conversations. It doesn't matter what it's about, but the deep, meaningful conversations to the table. One podcast that I was going to believe in the poker industry very soon, right? So I'll give this one away for free, but one podcast that I was going to do, I was going to give it to Run It Once, was um, how do you learn? How do poker players learn? I think that would be a really, really interesting shtick for somebody to take it up and run it, like interviewing Ike Haxton, Jennifer. How do you learn? Break down your learning thought process and how you turn that thought process into actual physical learning tools, et cetera, et cetera. And then you've got to get the right guests. So for me, I am high stakes poker. My goal was to just get everybody.
0: You did a good job with that. Phil Ivy, Eric Seidel, Tom Dwan. How do you approach an interview with somebody who doesn't get interviewed very often compared to interviewing somebody who does regular media tours?
1: You've got to build relationships, I guess. And you've got to do your time. You're never going to get the top, 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 top dogs, right? But you can still get people by like, what did I do? I traded. So you've got to provide the other person with some value. There needs to be a transference of value. And we need to remember, this is the mistake that I made. I was a pain in the ass to be around with on a Triton tour, I think, for certain poker players. So there's some poker players that I know very well, and they know I've got a job to do. And the transference of energy, whilst uncomfortable, is, is okay, right? Because we know I've got a job to do. But then there are other poker players who I don't really have that relationship with, where I guess I just i am a pain in the ass. They're winning and losing millions of dollars. And here I come along saying, hey, I want to do an interview for you. I want to do an interview. I want to do an interview. So one of the things that I've learned that that I was doing really badly, and I've spoken about this before, I was turning people into gods. I was looking at people on the high, high stakes poker tour and I was putting them on a pedestal higher than me in status hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And as a, And as a person who grew up with a fixed mindset, getting my validation externally, When I'm around a lot of people who are excelling in poker and are making a lot of money, I create a story that they're better than me and I am less than to them. So when I go to them for an interview and ask them, I feel like a little boy asking a man for an interview. And that then makes me angry and my little defensiveness comes out and I can be confrontive. But I said to myself, I'm fucking done with this. I am not making people into gods anymore. And I've been on a coaching program. They've really helped me to see that typically when you are really, really successful at anything and you are like pulling in the money, there's a sacrifice that you have to make in order to get that way. Elon Musk, I don't know, right? Elon Musk probably or has in the past spent so many hours just invested in what Elon Musk does. How does that affect his relationships? How does that affect his mindset? How does that affect his psychology? How does that f- affect loneliness, connection? No man or woman is a god. I'm going to go to ask everybody. And when you go with that confidence, when you, when you drop these stupid pretense, I think it was Charlie Carell that said to me, why do you always apologize when you're asking me for an interview? Don't apologize. If you stop apologizing, you'll probably get more interviews. That's smart. I've just been going up to people confidently, saying, "I want to interview you. Do you want to come and do it?" And I've been, I've been given a different energy to it, and really, really, kind of like well-known people who don't really talk to you. Don't see them anywhere. Even if they're saying no, they're having conversations with me, and I'm realizing they're human beings. So don't put people in the poker industry on a pedestal. It doesn't matter who they are don't. They're just human beings, the same as you, and they suffer and they have the same problems as you. Again, it's controversial. I know some poker players won't sit down with me because they think I make it about me, but I would advise people who are doing interviews to share some of your story. And and I think that that opening up of vulnerability, that exchange is much better than just asking questions and letting the other person just talk. And that is a controversial thing because I know a lot of people I've had feedback where people have said, Lee, I wish you would have just shut the fuck up. This wasn't about you. This was about him or her. And I'm like, okay, I need to take that on board. Right. But then there's other people going, wow, I love the fact that it's a conversation or, um, I'm not just listening to it because of the guest I'm listening to it because of you. So when people come on the grid, I imagine there's some people come on the grid because they like Jennifer They like what she's about. They like what she provides because you're providing value to the conversation as well with the way that you direct the questions, the way that you share some of your stories. So it's not just about the star, you know, and and to to be okay with that and to be open with that, I think provides a, a much more richer experience for viewers.
0: I mean, I think your deliberate approach is fantastic. And I mean, I'm sorry. Well, I'm not really sorry that you're leaving the industry because it sounds like you're off to things that are, you know, so meaningful and require your full attention. I mean, you will be missed. I really like what you said about not putting great players on a pedestal. And it's actually partly because I think that that type of thinking also can sometimes create the opposite thought that thinking that you're better than people who aren't as successful as you, right? So when you put people on pedestal, it also kind of creates this type of hierarchical thinking. And I just think that it's it's obviously not possible to always reach the ideal. But my, you know, my parents always taught me to not treat anyone like they're better than you or worse than you. And they never actually used that phrase, but looking back at my childhood, it was very unusual. But I feel like that was constantly instilled in me. And so I'm, I feel really lucky about that, but um, it's a constant process. you know. There's always gonna be moments where, where you fail and you, you, know, you think you're a little superior, you think you're a little inferior, but they're, they're intertwined.
1: I was definitely raised the opposite to that. I mean, I, I can't blame my parents. I look at the poker tour sometimes. It just reminds me of being in the school playground. The same dynamics exist, the same status. I find poker to be such a microcosm of life. And I know that's a hackneyed saying and we hear that all the time, but it's true.
0: Now, what was the best question that you ever asked in an interview? It's kind of like out of the box. Not that anybody has to steal it, but maybe they could be like inspired by it. Because I know you do ask a lot of quirky questions sometimes.
1: I don't know the answer to that one, Jennifer, but I will say questions are really important. I think... The most important thing is when you see, this is going to sound so odd. <laughs> when you see somebody you're interviewing in pain, you need to focus on that pain. So you need to, you need to ask them more questions about that pain. Whilst at the same time, respecting that they won't want to do that. So you might, you might say something like, um, I would love if you could go deeper on this, but I, I understand the respect if you don't want to Cause it sounds pretty painful, but I wanted to ask you this. And if you've got the right person, then they'll go for it. And then you just keep, keep going. The worst thing to do, and you can see this a lot in interviews, someone will just touch some pain point and then the interviewer will get uncomfortable and they'll move away from it. So it'll be like, uh, yeah, I, uh, my dad beat me when I was younger. Oh, right. Yeah. So anyway, tell us about that 10-8 suited hand in uh, GKP Blackpool. And as a viewer, you you might be thinking, why is it important to find out about why his dad batted him? For me, this guy is uber successful at what he's done and his dad battered him. Let's. How did, that, how did that work? And then how can we as parents embody that in our children without battering our children? Like what was it about it that, that got in? Look at like a Jason Kuhn, for example, who's openly said, hey, you know, my dad was really abusive to me when I was younger. I was homeless, all this kind of stuff. And then right now, you know, when I talk to people about Jason, Jason's like super driven. Like, I I want to win. I want to win. I want to get there. I want to get there. So like tying that together and seeing how it all works and that kind of like DNA strand of his life, I think that is the aspect that poker has been missing from poker training coaching sites, for example. If you want to learn how to play poker technically, then, you know, run it once and all that has it covered, you know? But I'm at the moment talking to Phil Galphon and Jason Center, going, let me in. Let me help your poker players earn even more money and live an even more incredible life by fixing some of the things that are that are bothering them off the table, that they're bringing with them onto the table. So I was speaking to two very high-stakes poker players uh, recently, and I won't mention their names because it's confidential, and I wanted them to talk about an, a real epic battle that went on at some period of time. And one of them said to me, I can't do that because I was so off my face during that time. I couldn't talk about it. I don't even know what happened. Think about that. Somebody was playing a prolonged series of games against somebody else, but he had so many problems off the table that he he lost gazillions. That is not being coached in uh, any training sites that I'm aware of. They might do. They might exist. But that that to me is like, it doesn't matter how great your technical game is if you're off your face. Let's work at why you're off your face.
0: You're totally right, and it's great advice to stay stick with because sometimes um, when when interviewers get to this this point where they're about to get to something good, they move on to the next question because that's their preparation, and that reminds me of poker where you're in a situation and you know you know from this specific situation you should do X, but that's not what you were prepared to do. You have studied and prepared to do Y, so you do Y, but you should have done X. And it sounds like that's not your style. And that might be why you have had such success in the
1: field. Well, it doesn't work, see, because like, if you like earlier, I would say my first ever coach would say to me, why do you raise Forex X from a big blind? So so what's my response to that? I feel really uncomfortable. So I, I want to shut down. I'm feeling a little bit ashamed, a little bit belittled. Like I'm creating all these feelings myself, not this guy. But I'm feeling really awkward. So I, I don't want to continue because i'm feeling a bit embarrassed that i don't know the answer Mm -hmm. if you come to an interview and you don't give any of yourself to it and it's not about you it's just about him and you're just like why and then you get to a question that you need to dig deeper and it's just like kind of like why like you need to be like really super skilled and sophisticated to be able to ask the right questions and without any context you need trust at that point for them to want to open up and go deeper to your questions so you know i think it's uh it sounds like I'm really defending myself and my style. <laughs> I love
0: it. And now that you're leaving the poker world pretty soon, which interview do you feel like will stick out the most in your memory is one that will like always be up there
1: in your heart? There's a, there's a few of them. The first one was my first one. So my first ever interview is Devilfish. And I never interviewed anybody in my life. And I got him just talking about so much stuff. And I published it in Poker Pro Europe magazine. So my first ever interview was a cover and it was spread out all in the middle, middle pages. And he went fucking mental because I didn't pass it through him first. He's like, I can't believe he said, everybody's coming up to me talking about this interview. Like, why didn't you run it by me? I I wouldn't have put all this in. And I remember I was so naive. I was like, what are you complaining about? You said everybody's coming up to you saying the interview is great. What's what's the matter? (laughs) He was like, oh, yeah, you got a point, but don't do it again. So, like, that one sticks in my mind, you know, because he's not with us anymore as well. And so that one was my first one. I think the people that I've really enjoyed interviewing, Andrew Robel, I think David Benefield on I Am High Stakes Poker is probably my best ever interview. The ones where we get really into life. And, um, you know, sharing philosophies and going deep about that and and then tying it into poker. They're always uh, my favorite ones. Yeah, for sure. You know, after this interview,
0: people are going to love to have even more of your work. And of course, they can find it on your Twitter, which is at chinkster23. If they're interested in the um, addiction work that you do, or rather the recovery work that you do, they can go to your 1000 Days Sober Profiles on youtube and instagram and then of course you you do have all those i am high stakes poker and heroes journeys videos lee it's been so fantastic for you to to come here on the show it's been completely different than any other interview we've had in the grid and i love that
1: i'm really grateful that you didn't you didn't expose my kind of like amateurish poker knowledge and we was able to talk more about life than, than uh than the game Thank you. I honor you for that. Thank
0: you. And ten eight suited with Lee Davey of 1000 Days Silver. Thank you so much for joining us on The Grid. Thanks for listening to the Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to US Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands.
1: No, I never bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. Cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got Tyler.